Hi, good morning again. We are in the seventh week of an eight-week series entitled Essential, uh, in which we're looking at the seven core doctrines of the faith. For the first week, we just did a a basic introduction, uh, but over the last uh, five weeks, we've been looking at the five first core doctrines of the faith. Today, we come to the six. What I'm going to do to get us started is I'm just going to give us a brief review, very brief, and then we're going to get right into the, the matter at hand. We've been talking about these doctrines as an effort to help us understand What do Christians believe? Now, here's kind of my thought with this. Um, Christianity is not a system that helps us be better people. Who wants to be a better person in this room? I hope everybody, you know? Who wants to be a worse person? But Christianity is not a system that helps us become better people. It It is a belief that we espouse that changes our behavior. The goal is not just to be a better person. The more is the goal is to be a more distinctly Christian person in our belief, and then in turn with our behavior. As we've been going through these doctrines, hopefully you've been connecting the dots, and I've been helping you do so, as it relates to how what we believe transforms how we behave. And so where we've been so far is we've looked at five of the first core doctrines of the faith. And the second week, we looked at the first core doctrine, the doctrine of authority. That for the Christian, there is an authority that exists outside of themselves that determines how they believe and how they behave. That authority for the Christian is what God says, or in other words, revelation. For the Christian, they align themselves around what God says. The most easily accessible form of revelation is, of course, the Bible. The blue book that we provide in, in the room like this, you've got Tons of people that have all kinds of versions of the Bible, both in the version, the translation, and also in the the gilding and the uh, binding. But it is not obviously the leather binding or hardcover binding or softcover binding or the gilding that makes a Bible special. It is the very words of God that make it so. Because in this book is contained what God says, the authority of God. In the second week, we looked at the second core, or the third week, we looked at the second core doctrine of our faith, which is the Trinity, that God is three persons, each person is fully God, and yet there is one God. Confusing, of course, essential, definitely. The third core doctrine of the faith is sin. It really has to do with who we are, mankind, man and woman. And the Christian teaching on sin is that we are sinful by practice and by inheritance. So when we ask ourselves, what is wrong with us? The answer is not that we're hungry, not that we're tired, not that we're thirsty, not that we had a bad childhood. The answer is our sinfulness is what's wrong with us. The fourth core doctrine of our faith is the person of Christ. Who is Jesus? And we saw that Jesus is fully God, fully man, two natures existing in one person. In the same way that the Trinity is confusing, the person of Christ is kind of confusing. In the Trinity, you have a three in one. In Christ, you have a two in one. God and man, two natures existing in one person, the God-man. And then last week, we looked at the work of Christ, which matters and depends on the person of Christ. That Christ died for our sins in our place so that we might be forgiven. Christ died for our sins in our place. That Christ's death is not simply a good example of how we can be better people done by a good man. It is a sacrificial sacrifice where God himself, robed in his divinity and his humanity, dies on the cross in our place for our sins. 
Over the course of these past couple weeks, every one of these doctrines we've taken a look at from a historical perspective through six eras of church history. And today I'm going to skip all of that. And like two people are going to be disappointed. But anyway, I'm going to skip all of that. And we're just going to take a look at the six core doctrine of our faith because I just didn't have the time to, to survey with what I wanted to do this morning. And I know most of you don't like it anyway. So anyway, that's just for me. Now, The doctrine that we come to this morning is the doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of salvation is a critically important one. It is based on the three doctrines that we've looked beforehand. Sin, the person of Christ, and the work of Christ. For if we're not sinners, then we don't need a Savior. Does this make sense? If we're not sinners, we don't need a Savior. If Christ wasn't fully God and fully man, then he couldn't save us anyway. And if his death was just an example then it doesn't really matter in an objective, concrete sense. But since we're sinners, since Jesus was fully God and fully man, and since his death did something, then this morning is all about how we experience what he did personally for ourselves. The word for this is salvation. It has occurred to me that Most of us in this room have thoughts on this. In fact, the majority of the people in this world believe in God. And yet, we give far too little emphasis to thinking through our eternal destiny. If, let's assume for sake of argument, you don't have to believe me when I start, but just listen to me for a moment. If what we do in this world determines our eternal destiny, what we do, what we believe, If our eternal destiny is impacted by the things we believe in this life, then it seems like it should be given more than a passing moment of our attention to consider. Does this make sense? In other words, the question that we're going to be looking at this morning is, by what standard are you counting on to determine your eternal standing before God? What standard are you counting on to determine where you stand with God. And whereas most people in this world don't take the time to really think through that question in a real good way, it seems as if to me that it's worthy of thinking about for a moment. And so for the next half hour, because you're pretty polite and probably won't walk out on me, I will force you to think it through. Yes? That's the way it's going to work. But you can walk out too if you want. (laughs) We're not a cult. There's no Kool-Aid in the lobby. Yeah? Now, Here's what we want to talk about this morning. Two things, and I'm just going to take you through them. We want to look at what I'm going to call the popular view of how people think their eternal destiny is determined, and we're going to look at a Christian view. That's all we're going to look at, two things, a popular view and a Christian view of how people think their eternal destiny works. Even in our society, uh, where there are a a continuing and growing amount of people who do not believe in God or who do not affiliate themselves religiously with anything, there is still, in our country, the vast majority of people believe in God. Now, I don't know how much stock you put by statistics. I've tried to find as recent ones as I can, but here's what I was able to uncover. According to uh, Pew Forum, 80, and this is a 2018 study, of Americans believe in God. 50% of them believe in the God of the Bible, however they define that. And 20% of people do not believe in God. But of those 20%, 
10% of those believe in some form of higher power, some kind of higher power. So according to this study, 90% of people believe in something that exists, a higher power or God. 72% of Americans believe in heaven and hell, that there is an eternal destiny after life, that there is a heaven and then there is a hell. Not surprisingly, 55% of people believe that there's a heaven but that there is no hell. That makes sense to me. Who wants to believe in hell? And so (laughs) if it's not popular, just don't believe in it. 3% of the country, this is just for fun and funny, 3% of the people believe in hell but do not believe in heaven. And those are the kind of people you want to avoid in life because they might stab you with the Grim Reaper knife, yeah? Oh, that's so terrible. (laughs) So offensive. Now, anyway, when we were uh, living in Mesquite, Texas, when I was going to seminary, uh, there was this dollar theater right behind the apartment. So we'd go to the theater pretty often, you know, because it was a dollar and it didn't even matter if we wanted to watch the movie. My wife has certain since then raised her standards, but I haven't. I would just go anything, see anything for a dollar that isn't certain things. Now, we were standing in line once to buy our tickets, and this is completely unrelated. We were standing in line to buy our tickets once, and there were these two gals. They were having like night away from their kids, I guess, you know, two gals, woman's night out, and they bought a double feature to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Saw, and I thought, I don't want to be around them when they're done watching those shows, but anyway, they might be in that, (laughs) that's horrible, all right, 3% believe in hell but do not believe in heaven, and 25% believe in neither, so 72% of people believe in heaven and hell, some type of afterlife. But now here's where things, this is anecdotally I find to be true. 72% of people believe, do, believe in heaven or hell. That means 27% don't, right? But then according to another study, 85% of Americans believe that they'll be in heaven when they die. Do you see the logic? Do you see the math, how that's flawed? You may not be a detail person, but you see that? 85% of people believe they'll be in heaven when they die. Because even if you say you don't believe in heaven or hell, have you ever made a bargain with God? You know, like, I did this all the time. Like, I didn't study for my tests in high school like I should and pray, pray to God and say, you know, God, help me get a good grade on this test, you know? If you do this, I'll do that. That's called a bargain. If you do this, I'll do that. Have you ever done that? Raise your hand if you've done it. I have. I've done that. Almost everybody does that, you know? Almost everybody in tight spots starts to do and say certain things, yeah? But, now this study's longer away. I found 2016, 2018, but I did find one statistic that says this. It's from 2006, though. But anecdotally, or just uh, experientially, this is what I have found to be true for most people on the street. 54% of people believe that they'll go to heaven and they'll go there because they've been good. That's the popular view, if you were to sum it up. The popular view is good people go to heaven. When people think about their eternal destiny, they think there is a heaven, good people go there, and I think I'm good. I think I've been good enough. Not perfect, mind you, but I think I've been good enough. It makes total sense, doesn't it? It makes total sense to believe good people go because the opposite would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? Bad people go. And so if you were creating a religion and you were just making one up from scratch, that's what you would think. In fact, it's really good. It's a good way to like kind of 
you know, uh, it's kind of like Santa Claus, you know, we're going to check the list twice, naughty or nice type stuff. What are you trying to do? You'll get presents, but you've got to be good for them, you know? Inherent in that belief is a motivation to be good, right? Because who doesn't want to live in a better world? Good people go. In fact, this is almost what every religion has ever taught except for Christianity. The ancient Egyptians, I said no history, but I'll give you a little. It's fun history, though. The ancient Egyptians, they had this view of the afterlife that when you died, you went to the Hall of Mott, which was one of their gods. And in the Hall of Mott, there was a god. He, was a, he had a crocodile face. If you've ever looked at Egyptian reliefs, have you ever seen the god, the, the Egyptian that has the crocodile head? Because most of us stare at Egyptian reliefs for fun at home. But the crocodile god Amut is always present in this Hall of Mott. And the Hall of Mott is the place that when you go, when you die, according to the Egyptians, and they weigh your heart. And your heart, you are born, according to the Egyptians, is heavy with darkness. But the more good you do in this world, the lighter your heart gets. And so in the Hall of Mott, Amut is there, and he is watching the scales. And Anubis, who's the jackal-headed god, if you look at the Egyptian reliefs, he weighs your heart. And Toth He's the God, the bird God. He is the bird head, if you ever look at the reliefs. He is recording all the findings. And if your heart is too heavy and you don't get in, the crocodile God, Amut, just gobbles up your heart and there you are. Done. Yep. The Vikings, good people go. They had a different way of defining, but the Vikings, a very warlike, nomadic group, valued war above all else. And so they had a religion that was based around those who fought hard in war and died with a sword in their hand would go to Valhalla, the afterlife, where they would party and drink and feast forever and ever. Amen. And that's why the Vikings, even in that time, even when they died, they'd die with a sword in their hands. Because even if they didn't die in battle, they died with a sword in their hands. Because good people go. They just have a weird way of defining good. Yeah? Coming up to more modern times, uh, the religion of Islam. Islam's, Islam believes that you get to heaven by obeying Allah in a sufficient way. In a different way than the Egyptians, but very similar, they believe that if your life was weighty enough, that if you did enough good and your life counted for enough, had enough weight, that when your life was placed on the scales in the afterlife, that your Good deeds, if they outweighed their bad deeds, that you would get in to the afterlife. Muslims hope that by repeating what Muhammad said and did, it will be enough for the scales to be tipped. But in order, in order to tip the scales a little bit more in their favor, they say extra prayers, go on pilgrimage, perform good works, all in hope of tipping the scales. But you know, Islam has one sure way to get in right? The news talks about it every so often. Martyrdom, jihad, you know? And so that's the only way. Uh, Martyrdom in service to Allah is the only way to send a worshiper to paradise. Buddhism believes in nirvana, this perfect spiritual state in which if through following uh, a transcendental, blissful life. You know, this through following the path, if they call it the eightfold path, through following the eightfold path, which includes understanding the universe, acting, speaking, 
and living in a right manner with right intentions that you will enter into nirvana eventually with enough good works, which is a spiritual, transcendental, blissful state. Hinduism is all about freeing oneself from the cycle of reincarnation. And if you do enough bad things, you, you store up karma for yourself. And when you reincarnate, you reincarnate to things you don't want to reincarnate to, either bad people or bad animals or something, you know? And through enough bad karma, you get reincarnated into bad things. But through enough good things, you get reincarnated to better things. Till eventually you get outside of the cycle of reincarnation and you enter into the place of the gods, the god. Uh, We've been looking at history over the last little bit. And we've looked at the comparison versus traditional or conservative Christianity versus liberal Christianity. Liberal Christianity is taught that Christ was not God, that Christ's death was an example for us, taught that we are not innately sinful, but that we just have had bad examples. In the strains of liberal Christianity, and I, I hesitate to say that to not be confusing, for it is not Christian, but in the strains of liberal Christianity, if you're good enough and you're reforming and restructuring society so that it's better, then you get to be a part of a better place. Almost every religious system ever created always has the same message, always in different ways, but the message is the same. There is a place, good people go there, be good. Because they're checking the list and they're checking it twice, right? That's how every system works. And it makes complete sense. If you were making up a religion or I were doing it, we would do the same thing, wouldn't we? We would create a system where good people go and we would try to motivate people to better being good. And so, of course, this is what the majority of us in this world believe. It's what all of us would believe if left to default, that good people go to heaven because bad people going there sounds completely unfair and ridiculous. But as I've alluded to earlier, the truth is that most people... Never stop enough to sit and just think about this issue long enough because we're so busy with all kinds of other things and we just lean on our default thinking it'll all work out in the end and we'll try to be as good as we possibly can. Most people are so preoccupied with working, that takes a lot out of us, with love, that takes a lot out of you, right? School, sports, family, and whatever it else is that takes up your time and affection and energy, that you do, we don't always give a lot of thought to our eternal destiny. But if we were to stop, and we will, because I'm in charge for right now, if we were to stop and to think about the whole idea of good people go, it is deeply, deeply flawed. And I want to just raise to your attention three reasons why. The first thing is, think about it with me for a moment, We don't know exactly what good is. What I mean by that is we can't agree as a society, as a humanity, what it looks like to be good. Take out Christianity for a second. There are people in our world who think drinking is good, some who think it's bad, right? Who are convinced it's horrible bad. Some people think dancing is okay, some think it's bad. Some think you can live with your girlfriend or boyfriend before marriage, some think you can't. Right? There's all kinds of different philosophies and thoughts about what good and bad is. There's not universal agreement. 
If I were to sit down and I were to ask you to take the next, I don't know, let's give you 48 hours of time to do this. 48 hours, and you were to come up with a tome, uh, as much as you could in that time frame, of your instruction manual on morality, what you think good or bad is. Our manuals would all look different. We'd have some common things. We probably would all agree that it's wrong to murder, rape, and steal, right? But our morality code, when it gets into more specifics, would be significantly different on all kinds of accounts. But it's not just this, that we can't agree on what good is. Think about it with me for a moment. The second deep flaw is there is no point system to determine how much good you have to do. The scoring system is unclear. If it's true that good people go and that our good has to outweigh our bad to get into our eternal paradise or heaven or whatever we call that, eternal life, then don't you think we would have a clear idea of what the point system was like? I often joke about it. The way it makes it sound sometimes is that our life is like playing Mario. When you get a mushroom, you get 100 points and it beeps and you see it up in the right-hand corner and you, you know how many points you've got. But there is no point system that determines how much points you get for walking an old lady across the street who's struggling or for baking cookies for your neighbor because they just moved into your subdivision. Do you see what I'm saying? There's no point system. And it would be extremely cruel to not give the point system if so much is hanging in the balance. What if you get into the room, the hall of Mott, and your heart is being weighed and you were one cookie delivery to your neighbor that's new in the subdivision away? You see what I'm saying? It's a little sacrilege, but I think you understand. The scoring system is completely unclear if good people go, how much good and what is good? How much good and what is good? And then, of course, the third reason where I think this is just so extremely flawed is that the Bible just contradicts it in the most radical and provocative ways imaginable. Not in a way that our culture wouldn't like, but in some ways in a way that our culture would like. Did you know that in the Bible, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, that Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. Let me help you feel the weight of what Jesus is saying there for a moment. The Pharisees were the first century good people. They were paid religious people whose whole lives were about being good. In a way, even that myself as a, as a preacher is not. I, my job is around telling you what, helping you to see God and telling you what the Bible says. They believed in order to see God, you had to be good. And so you had to follow the law. And they were the professional people who kept the law and created extra laws to go around the law so you wouldn't break it. And then they were kept that too. Does this make sense? They were the professional good people who did good things. And yet Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. And later on, he says, the Pharisees won't get in, but the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes will. So what is Jesus saying? He's not saying that good people don't go and bad people do. He's saying that there is another standard by which your eternal destiny is determined that goes beyond what you do or don't do. In the Christian answer to this question, the biblical answer is not that good people go, but rather that forgiven people go to heaven. Not good people, 
forgiven people. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in in his sight by observing the law. No one is declared righteous by doing good things, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We understand what we've done that's wrong. But now a righteousness comes from God apart from the law and has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. It is not that good people go, for through the law, no one will be justified, be made righteous. It is through forgiveness, through the grace of God, through his son, Jesus Christ, that people experience salvation. Because salvation is God's grace enabling us to place our trust in the death of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Salvation is God's grace enabling us to place our faith or our trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And that statement is a loaded one. And really there's two ideas or words in that statement that I want to develop. The first is grace. This is the most beautiful component of all of Christianity. It is what sets it apart and it is what gives it a beauty beyond anything else I know of at least for me. And to be Christian is to have your heart filled with the beauty of grace. What do I mean? Grace is nothing more than unearned favor. Something that you receive that you did nothing to earn. At Christmas time, isn't this what we do for our kids? It's not what Santa Claus does. He only gives them if you've been naughty or if you've been nice. If you get naughty, you get cold. But good parents give gifts to their children, not on the basis of what their children do, but on the basis of their love for their children, right? Good parents give gifts to their children on the basis of their love for their children, not on the basis of what their kids do. And if your gifts to your kids go up and down on the basis of their performance, you just, independent of everything I've said today, you might want to think about that for a bit. That might be something to consider. Grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve out of his love, out of his love, out of his love. Salvation is all by this kind of grace. Salvation is not God cooperating with us and helping us with what we couldn't provide. Some people think of salvation like this. They think of salvation, I don't have enough that I, I can't be good enough for God. And so God's grace kind of makes up the gap of what I don't have in and of myself. But this is not a Christian understanding of grace. A Christian understanding of grace says this, I come to God bankrupt and with nothing and he gives me everything and I in just love and gratitude fall before him in thankfulness. And you may believe that on a theological or a a abstract mental level, but I want to challenge you for a moment to think through your life and how you believe it at a practical level. 
Because did you know that the amount that you believe you've been forgiven and loved by grace will be the same amount by which you experience joy and extend joy to others as it pertains to your relationship with God? Put it this way. If you believe you're pretty awesome, but you just had a small sliver that God had to make up, then you'll be thankful for that small sliver, but you'll just think for the most part you're pretty awesome. But if you think that I have nothing to give to God and out of his grace and love, he has given me everything, you will treat people different and you will believe different about yourself and it will transform every aspect of your life. You won't look at other people and think to yourself, yeah, I'm not in their situation because I didn't do what they did (laughs) and I'm better than them. You'll think, so would a B.I. except for the grace of God. And then you'll extend grace and love to them in any way you can. We are finite in our resources. God is infinite, and so we can't make up all the gaps that exist in people's lives. But neither will our hearts be hardened where we look at them with disgust. We will look at them with love and yearn to help have them understand the grace that we've received. For salvation is not cooperation with God, where we give him, where we give him what we have and he makes up the deficit. Salvation is us going to God and him giving us everything. And salvation is not a deal. You know, we talked about that earlier. It's not a deal that we broker with God, where we give him something in exchange for something that we have. What I didn't mention earlier is when we make deals with God, there is an underlying assumption in that deal, isn't there? Do you know what it is? That you have something that God needs or wants. You don't have anything that he needs. He is sufficient all in himself. He longs for you because of his love. He does not get stronger when you obey him. He longs for you. And so salvation is not cooperation with God. It is not a deal that we make with God in which he gets something and we get something. It is him giving us everything and us standing in gratitude. But there's a second component of this statement, isn't there? Salvation is by grace and it is God's grace enabling us to place our trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The picture that this statement gives us and the picture that the Bible gives us is the picture of God, our perfect heavenly father, standing with his arms open wide. Arms open wide, giving us everything that is his by his grace, if only we would come into his arms. And there are some who choose not to go in. There are some who choose to not place their trust in Jesus Christ. But he is big enough for all And his arms are big enough to enclose around all. So salvation is by grace. And it is through faith. Through placing our trust. It is as the Apostle Paul says in one of his most famous passages, Ephesians chapter 2, where he says this. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And it is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand in advance for us to do. We are saved by grace 
It is through faith, and we do good things out of gratitude. We are not saved through good things where God owes us. We are saved by grace, 100%, through faith, and we do good things out of gratitude. You may be thinking as I've been speaking that this is absurd. Are you saying that there is nothing that we do that earns our salvation? How is that possibly fair? Are you saying that there are people who have done good things their whole life and who never place their trust in Jesus, who do not experience eternal destiny with God, and then there are people who do bad things and place their trust in God, and they get to experience heaven? And that answer is, of course I'm saying that. Of course. Because how good is good enough? How many good things do you have to do to earn your way and you can't earn your way? You don't even, your code isn't the same as everybody else's code and you have no idea of the point system. How do you even know if the point system is going to work out? The only way is through forgiveness. And as to the question, is it fair? The answer is complicated, isn't it? For is forgiveness really ever fair? In some sense, you could say no, right? Forgiveness is never, ever, ever fair. My son has been, Harrison has been really getting into soccer. So he's been playing soccer and we have this fence. It's really nice, this fence in our backyard. It's older, but it's nice. And uh, so he's been getting the soccer ball and he's been kicking his soccer ball against the fence. He broke the fence because he's playing soccer so aggressively. And so what I could say to him, and it would be completely fair, Harrison, you have to fix the fence. You broke it. Until you do, you will get no food or lodging from us. Right? (laughs) That would be fair. He broke it. I didn't break it. Why should I fix the fence? And you know, any, any any, any household thing at my house is a crisis because I don't know how to do anything. So that was like a big deal. I was thinking to myself, how am I going to fix that thing? And I did fix it with a screw gun and screw. You know, how anybody fixes something like that. And it took me 20 minutes, and after I felt like I was like He-Man, you know? But anyway, so of course it's not fair. The fair thing is that Harrison fixes the fence. He broke it, you fix it, privileges revoked until you do. That's fair on one sense, is it? Isn't it? <laughs> Maybe some of you were loved that way. Did you like it? I doubt it. Forgiveness is never fair. Because what we are inherently saying when we forgive is, you have cost me something, money, emotional capital, time, and I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. Isn't it? Hmm. So in one sense, forgiveness is never fair. Ever. But in another sense, is it fair, and there couldn't be anything more fair than the way God has loved and forgiven us? And if you have, if you do take notes, you should write down these next three things. And then you should think about them before your Sunday nap and let it fill your heart with joy. Is it fair? Think about salvation. Everybody is welcome. Everybody. God loves everybody. 
He has his arms open wide. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome. There's never a point where somebody comes to God and says, God, I long for you. I'm so sorry for my sinfulness. Would you please accept me? Nah, not this time. Maybe next time. Maybe the next person. Never, ever, ever works that way. Everybody's welcome. Everybody gets in the same way, right? By grace, through faith. There is not one requirement for one and another requirement for another. You know, you did some good things, so you can do a little less, and I'll let you in. Never works that way. It is every single person, fully spiritually bankrupt, nothing to offer, but full offer of everything that is God's. Everybody is welcome. Everybody gets in the same way by grace through faith. And third, everybody can meet the requirement. Everybody can meet the requirement. There's no certain amount of uh, weight that you have to bench press to get into heaven, you know? If you can't bench your own body weight, you can't come to church here. Now, that's not fair, right? Not everybody can do it right now. Me, never, probably, because my ability to lift things that are heavy goes down while my weight increases. I have found that to be an alarming trend, actually, in my life. That was a joke. Everybody is welcome. Everybody gets in the same way. And everybody can meet the requirement. How can you know if you are forgiven? How can you know if you are forgiven? The answer to this question is a different way of knowing. It's a knowing by faith versus a knowing of like putting things in a test tube in a scientific lab. But the story of the gospel and the message of salvation are Christianity's answer, God's answer to how you know you are forgiven. The story of the gospel is a long story, but I'll summarize it very briefly. It is the story of how God created a perfect world and how his world, including humanity, willfully chose to sin. Humanity willfully chose to sin and experienced a loss of relationship with God. And so, ever since that time, God has been on a rescue mission to restore what has been lost with relationship between humanity and God. His rescue mission culminated in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, to die on the cross for our sins in our place so that we might be restored. And for all of us who have placed our faith in the gracious gift that God has given us, we've experienced salvation. That is how we know we have been forgiven. And one day, and we'll look at it next week, Christ will return. And when he does, the righteousness of God will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. And on earth, all will dwell in peace and safety and in righteousness. But it is not that day, but today is not that day. But today, you and I who place our faith in Jesus can in a very small and impartial way begin to foreshadow and reflect that coming day until Christ brings it in completion. And the message of, that's the story of the gospel. The message of salvation is how you get to be a part of it. And it happens in what is really just called a transfer of your trust. 
What are you trusting in? What is your standard of what you believe? Or what are you counting on to determine your eternal destiny? And if your standard is how good you've been, then you need to transfer your trust into a different standard. You need to transfer your trust into placing your faith in what Jesus has done on your behalf and accepting the forgiveness of God. That's it. I was taught when I was a child to say a simple prayer that went something like this, and it's simply not magic. The words do not save us. But for those who have never prayed a prayer that goes something like this or that have believed in their heart something that goes like this, this is how we can know we've been forgiven. By going before God with our hearts broken and praying, Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have sinned and that I cannot make things right on my own. I believe that Jesus died for my sin, paying its price, and I place my trust in that sacrifice. And that is it. And then living lives of gratitude, not for salvation, but because of it. And so this morning, I want to challenge anyone who's never prayed that prayer to consider Jesus, to consider who he was, what he did, and how you desperately need a Savior. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, my challenge to us all this morning is to have our hearts filled with the beauty of Jesus again and anew, to reassess our lives so that we are living lives of grace and not lives of works. That we are believing in our hearts that the way and the beauty of God is better than the things that this world offers. Do you know what I struggle with all the time? What I struggle with or what I'm, what I'm struggling to do is there, are, it's like there's two cities and there's the city of God and there's the city of sin and selfishness. And in the city of sin and selfishness, there are many who look at it and see its joys and its allure for the short term. And sometimes those who do not live in that city look at that city with longing and joy, wishing they could be there. Because it offers something in the short term, doesn't it? And then there's the city of God, which seems hard at times, but leads to lasting joy. What I am doing, and I'm going to close with this, I'm trying to fight and struggle to live in the city of God and not look at je- with jealousy at the city of self. To believe and live out as though I do that the ways of God are better than the short-term pleasures of man. Does this make sense? And to experience the joy that this city lives in. For my heart is not to say, well, I'm over here and hating it. Yeah? I'm over here and loving it. And the beauty of what God has done for me through Jesus so fills my heart with joy that it is not hard for me to look at this city and look at it with compassion and acceptance and grace. For what happens too often is when we look at this city with judgment and harshness, We do nothing for the good for the kingdom of God. And we tell others, we don't want you. We long long and we live in this city. We long to live in it. And we long to show others this city. And it will never be shown to them in judgment and harshness.
And so we pray as we close. And let me pray for you. Father, help us to value our differences, give grace in our weaknesses, to grow in intimacy and unity, and be a safe place for each other. Amen.